It's actually called extinction. We don't unlearn fear, we extinguish fear like a fire that we put out. And the part of our brain that's responsible for that extinction of fear is the prefrontal cortex. So it's the part of your brain that's responsible for higher level thinking and cognition. Welcome to episode number seven of Talk Nerdy to Me. This one is going to be entirely focused on fear and anxiety. So where your nervous system's fear response comes from, why fear isn't always necessarily a bad thing, the difference between healthy fear and anxiety, and a few key action steps that you can take to shift yourself from fear and anxiety into empowerment. Before we delve into today's episode, I want to take a moment to acknowledge, first of all, all of the teachers that have contributed to making Talk Nerdy to Me possible and for the knowledge and information that they've passed down to me. But there are two specifically that I really want to take a moment to give a little shout out to here. The first is Kristen Leal. Some of you have already listened to episode number four with Kristen, where we talk about the relationship between science, anatomy, and spirituality. And the other teacher that I want to acknowledge here is Professor Michael Fanzalo. When I was at UCLA, I took an amazing course with him called The Psychobiology of Fear and Anxiety. And that's where a lot of the material for today's episode is drawn from. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of today's episode and start really talking nerdy, I want to take a moment to thank everybody that has listened to this podcast so far. At the time that this episode is being recorded, Talk Nerdy to Me is only one week old, just a little infant baby podcast, and the feedback that I have been getting has been absolutely amazing. If you have been reaching out to me via DMs on Instagram or emailing me and sharing your feedback on the episodes that you've listened to so far, both the things that you're loving and the things that you want more of and the things that I can do even better on, I just want you to know that I'm getting all of that feedback and I hear you and I so deeply appreciate it. My goal here is to create episodes that you love and that are really supportive and practical for you. So thanks for reaching out. Thanks for giving me your feedback. And if you could take a moment to pause right now on whatever platform you're listening on and give this podcast a five-star rating, and if you have the option, a written review as well, that makes a really, really big difference in helping get this podcast into the ears and the brains of more listeners like you. So on that note, let's go ahead and delve right in. We can't talk about our body's fear response without first understanding what the autonomic nervous system is and what the nervous system is in general. So if you've never taken a class with me before, if you've never taken a training with me before, if you're really unfamiliar with my body of work, then I think it's important we slow down and discuss this. So neuroscience is not just the study of the human brain. It's also the study of the human nervous system. Your nervous system doesn't just compose of your brain and your spinal cord, 
but all of the other nerve pathways that move and radiate throughout the rest of your body, including the nerve pathways that allow you to move your arms and your legs and the nerve pathways that send the signal to your stomach to digest and your heart to beat and your lungs to breathe. So at any given moment in time, your nervous system is always doing hundreds, if not thousands of tasks. And most of those tasks are happening beneath the level of your conscious awareness. So your heart beating, your lungs breathing, your stomach digesting, those are all functions of your autonomic nervous system. In other words, this part of your nervous system that can function autonomously or unconsciously independent of any intentional effort on your part. And it's a really good thing that you have this part of your nervous system that's capable of taking care of all of these different tasks unconsciously. Because if you had to consciously think about your heart beating, your lungs breathing, your stomach digesting, you would go crazy. There's just way too much for you to be doing at any given moment in time. And if you didn't go crazy, you would probably very quickly forget one of the hundreds, if not thousands of tasks that you had to do and wouldn't survive for very long. So the fact that so much is happening unconsciously is a really, really good thing. Now, if we were to further subdivide your autonomic nervous system into two distinct branches, you can think of it almost as like your body's gas pedal and then your body's braking system. So the gas pedal, that branch, would be referred to as your sympathetic nervous system. In other words, your body's fight, flight, freeze, fawn, stress response. Your parasympathetic nervous system is commonly known as your body's rest and digest or feed and breed relaxation response. So again, you can think of these two branches as your body's gas pedal or your body's braking system. And when you hear those two things side by side, your sympathetic nervous system versus your parasympathetic, your stress response versus your relaxation response, one of them sounds absolutely amazing and one sounds absolutely awful. And I think that we live in a culture where it's really easy for us to kind of get in the habit or get in the pattern of, looking at things as being black or white, good or bad, to look at things in a a way that's very polarizing. But the reality is that we need both of these branches of our nervous system functioning and functioning optimally in order to keep ourselves alive and safe and continue to survive. So your sympathetic nervous system, that fight, flight, freeze, fawn, stress response, It's not just responsible for managing stress, but it's also responsible for your level of alertness or attention, or in the words of Kristen Leal in episode number four, your body's engagement response. So your ability to be engaged and really participating with your external environment is a function of your sympathetic nervous system. And that's something that's necessary in order to be a human being with a job who has responsibilities, who has shit to do. You can't just be this like relaxed cuddle puddle all the time. You have to be able to be awake and be participating in your life in order to move forward and survive. 
the issue with the sympathetic nervous system is that most of us spend just a little bit too much of our time there. We never give ourselves the opportunity to transition into more of a parasympathetic or relaxed state. Being in a state of attention, being in a state of engagement, or being in a state of high-level stress is a function of your nervous system that evolved in an effort to protect you and specifically to protect you from predators within your environment. When we look at the sympathetic nervous system, when we look at our body's fight or flight stress response or fight, flight, freeze, fawn, every year they add a new F word to it. We'll see if the most exciting one comes next. But the reason why we evolved this stress response was in reaction to predation and danger within our environment. So thousands and thousands of years ago, our ancestors didn't have things like tax bills and really annoying mother-in-laws and first dates to stress them out. The things that were causing them to be stressed out were things like tigers and snakes within their environment, things that would literally kill them. So your ability to fight or run away from danger is an evolutionary benefit based on what helped protect and keep our ancestors alive. The physiological reactions that this part of your nervous system would have elicited thousands and thousands of years ago when your ancestors were encountering stress, were encountering danger, are the same things that are evoked in you when you encounter stressors. So when your sympathetic nervous system is activated, your heart will start beating a little bit faster, your breathing rate will speed up, your lungs will start working a little bit harder, your pupils will dilate, and previously that was because it would make it easier to detect movements within the physical environment visually. Your muscles would partially contract so that they were already ready to fight or run away. Your blood would start to flow from your core vital internal organs out towards your extremities, so towards your arms and legs and the bigger muscles that you would need in order to do the fighting or the running away. And both of those things, fighting and fleeing, are very energy intensive. They require a huge amount of resources. And when I talk about resources, I'm talking about oxygen and glucose and the nutrients that you've derived from the food that you're eating. And that ability to utilize resources in order to protect yourself and keep yourself safe is something that would be really, really important and effective if there was actually danger in your environment. The issue is that you're not meant to live there. Our bodies are designed to be in that extremely high state of stress for short bursts of time, long enough that we can escape or eliminate the danger and then move forward with our life, move forward with our day. The resources that are required in order to do the fighting or the fleeing and the places where your body will draw those resources from are anything that doesn't ensure your immediate survival. 
So when you're in a heightened state of stress, when your sympathetic nervous system is activated, your body will draw those resources from your digestive system. Because if you're not going to survive the next five minutes of this tiger attack, it doesn't matter if you can digest the breakfast burrito you just had. If you're not going to survive the next five minutes of this tiger attack, it doesn't matter if your immune system is online to fight off a virus that would take two weeks to kill you. If you're not going to survive the next five minutes, it doesn't matter if you are able to procreate and reproduce. You're definitely not going to have enough time to get it on, let alone sustain a pregnancy. So your body will draw resources from your hormones and your reproductive organs in order to push more of those resources into the things that will immediately ensure your survival. And again, that's a really, really good thing when there's danger present. We want to be able to move into that heightened state of stress when there's something that could threaten our survival right here and right now. And we're not meant to live there all day. So when we go for too long in a sympathetic nervous system state, in a heightened fear response, we begin to struggle with our digestive system. We begin to struggle with our neuroendocrine system, our hormonal and reproductive system. Our immune system is weakened. We start to get sick all the time. So we want to have access to sympathetic nervous system states, especially heightened levels of sympathetic nervous system state when there's danger actually present. When there's not, we want to be able to tone it down enough that we can be present and engaged with our external world, participating in our day-to-day life without feeling that flood of adrenaline and rush of stress. And when appropriate, we want to be able to really turn off and shift into more of that relaxation response. In 2023, we don't necessarily have tigers that are immediately threatening to our survival. Most of us are not encountering snakes on a daily basis. But we have these wildly vivid imaginations that are capable of mentally putting us in situations that are beyond what is physically real for us right now. And because of that, because we have this capacity to project our minds into the future and anticipate the public speaking event that's coming up in two weeks or the work deadline that's due on Friday or the first date that we're going on tomorrow night, We can trigger our body's sympathetic nervous system state proactively for things that haven't even occurred yet. Because of that, we're capable of experiencing anxiety. If you've never heard the actual definition of anxiety before, you're in for a real treat because I'm about to tell you. So anxiety is fear of a future event or uncertain outcome. In other words, it's making up an imaginary tiger that does not yet exist in this moment. The problem is that your body doesn't know the difference between what is happening in physical reality and what is imagined. So every time you subject yourself to an imaginary tiger, your body's going to have the same physiological response as if it were happening here and now. 
So not only is it bad enough that if you have a fear of public speaking, you experience that fear response in a moment when you're up on stage in front of a bunch of people. But when you start to think of and anticipate that public speaking event, you'll have the same heart racing, palms sweating, pupils dilating, feeling a little dizzy, upset stomach kind of sensation, just thinking about it happening. There are a lot of tools and tricks I could give you on this podcast to start to physically shift yourself into more of a relaxed nervous system state. But what I really want to emphasize here is that it doesn't matter how much breath work you're doing. It doesn't matter how much you're lengthening your exhales more than your inhales or moving through a self-regulation practice. If your mind is constantly focusing on imaginary tigers that do not yet exist, it's like you're continuously re-exposing yourself to that same danger and your body is responding appropriately. So rather than having this quick flood of adrenaline, this really highly activated intense stress response, and then that shutting down and switching off, we'll get stuck in it for days or weeks or months or years on end. So if you haven't been paying full attention to this podcast episode up until this point, now would be a really, really good time to perk up your ears and get out your notebook and really listen. It doesn't matter what you're doing with your physical body. If your mind is constantly focused on imaginary tigers that do not yet exist, if you want to begin to move through your body's fear and anxiety response and shift into more of a parasympathetic nervous system state, a relaxed nervous system state, you have to be able to gain control of your thoughts and your mind as well. Which means that you have to foster a greater level of self-awareness to the point where you're able to wake yourself up in moments of high-level stress and redirect your attention elsewhere. What I mean by that is wake yourself up in moments of high-level stress and reorient your nervous system to the safety of this present moment in time. One of the things that I will often do when I'm coaching my clients is give them homework assignments. And I'm going to give all of you a little homework assignment right now as well. If you are someone who experiences anxiety, if you are someone who experiences chronic stress, if you have been really afraid of taking some leap of faith or making a big move in your life, this is what I'm going to invite you to do. The next time you find yourself going down a rabbit hole, going down a fear spiral, spinning yourself out on some source of anxiety or stress or something you're afraid of, and you'll know that you're in that when you feel your heart racing and your breathing getting a little more shallow and your stomach getting upset or whatever physical symptoms and sensations you associate with fear and anxiety, when those start to come online, that's your moment to pay attention. And when you start to pay attention, I'm going to encourage you to pull out a notebook and a pen or pull out the notes app on your phone and start to write down word for word 
what your inner monologue is saying. And you can think of this almost like writing a movie script. If the voice in your head, the thing that's going from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep, that's making judgments and criticisms saying, I want to wear this shirt today, or I really want a breakfast burrito. In case it's not totally obvious, breakfast burritos are very much on my mind today. But that voice that's like, I can't believe she did that, or can't believe that asshole cut me off in traffic, that voice in your head that's making judgments and observations and criticisms of everything that you're doing over the course of the day and everything that everyone else is doing over the course of the day, this is the moment where I'm going to invite you to write down every single thing that you think and to write it down in first person as if you were writing a movie script. So what exactly, word for word, would the voice of your inner monologue say? And this is a really helpful practice because it gives you space, it gives you distance between you, the person that is participating in those thoughts, and the part of you that is the observer. You can think of it almost like a movie. Actually, movie is a perfect analogy for this. So if you were watching a horror film, for example, there's part of you that knows that what is happening on the screen isn't real. And yet when you're watching a movie, for most people when they're watching movies, at a certain point they become so enmeshed in what's happening to the characters on screen, at least if it's a really good movie with good actors, they do that we lose ourselves for a moment and we empathize with what the characters are going through. So when there's a moment of suspense and then someone jumps out, we physically jump in our seats, you know, spilling our popcorn everywhere because there's a part of us that momentarily forgets that the movie we're watching is not actually real. The same thing is happening when we experience anxiety, except the movie that we're watching is our inner monologue. It's the thought patterns that we're participating in and thinking all day long. Your thoughts are not objective reality. They're a narrative that's created based on the amalgamation of everything that you've learned over the course of your lifetime. The benefit to a practice like this, creating a script for your thoughts is twofold. The first is that it gives you the opportunity to reflect back on what exactly you're thinking and what cognitions you're participating in, what cognitive distortions you're participating in, which we can talk about in just a moment. I'll put a little pin in that. And because of that, it gives you the opportunity to objectively assess what is the truth, what is real, and what is not real, what is actually dangerous to you right now, and what is ultimately not useful or not helpful to be participating in. In episode number one on neuroplasticity and how to rewire your brain, we talked a little bit about a technique called Socratic questioning. Socratic questioning is a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy technique, whereby we question the truth and validity of the thoughts that we are thinking in an effort to disprove them to ourselves in an effort to remind ourselves that the movie that we're watching within our own mind is imaginary, that it's not real. The second benefit that we get 
from participating in a practice like this is that it gives us the opportunity to alert our brains to the fact that paying attention to thoughts like this is highly important, which makes it more and more likely that we foster a higher level of self-awareness and can spontaneously wake ourselves up in these downward spirals of thought and subsequently choose to redirect our attention back to some facet of the present moment or something that's significantly more useful. So we put a pin in cognitive distortions. Let's come back to that for a moment. So cognitions are the mental phenomenon that are occurring within the container of your head. So for example, your patterns of thinking. Cognitive distortions are distorted patterns of thinking that do not accurately reflect back to you reality objectively as it is. Because cognitive distortions are not reflecting reality accurately back to you, they oftentimes are reflecting a story or a narrative that's significantly scarier or more stressful than what is actually occurring in this moment. The way that I like to explain cognitive distortions is that they're very similar to those old school carnival houses of mirrors. If you've ever been through one of those, basically there are all of these different mirrors and they don't reflect back to you your mirror image as it actually is. Instead, they have all of these distortions built in so you can't see yourself clearly. Cognitive distortions are patterns of thinking that reflect reality, other people, and your perception of yourself back to you in very distorted and oftentimes stressful or painful or fear-evoking ways. So a huge part of reconditioning your body's fear response and stress response is getting a hold of your mind so that you're able to better identify when your thoughts are not actually an accurate reflection of what is happening in the here and now so that you can ultimately change them. I want to pause for just a moment here and share that our distorted patterns of thinking and our distorted patterns of perception are not always our fault. A lot of our inner monologue, a lot of the way that we've been taught to think is based on early childhood experiences, primary caregivers, and the environment that we grew up in and continue to live in. Society plays a really big role in how we're taught to think and feel and the perception that we're supposed to have about ourselves and the world around us. Over the course of human history, from an evolutionary perspective, we're all as a species evolving a heightened fear and stress and anxiety response. And this is because of a theory called signal detection theory. We mentioned this in the last episode with Ashley Weller, but scientific theories are very different from other kinds of theories. So the theory that I, Alex Nashton, have that talk nerdy to me is the greatest podcast about neuroscience on the internet is very different from a scientific theory. Scientific theories have accumulated such extensive bodies of evidence 
over the course of their research history that we basically uphold them as truth. For example, gravity is a theory. We have yet to encounter any evidence that counters or opposes it. Signal detection theory is a theory that basically upholds that we as a species are becoming increasingly anxious because we benefit more from being hypervigilant than we do from being ignorant. And I'll give you an example. If one of your ancestors was walking through the woods and it saw a snake out of the corner of its eye somewhere along the path and it jumped back before the snake had the chance to bite it, that would be of service to the ongoing survival of our species. Now, if one of our ancestors was walking through the woods and it had evolved traits of ignorance and it misperceived this snake, say, for example, this particular ignorant ancestor saw the snake but thought that it just looked like a stick and didn't jump back and got bitten and died, that ancestor would have very quickly eliminated itself from the gene pool. Say, for example, you had an ancestor that was walking through the woods and saw a stick, but misinterpreted that stick as a snake and jumped back and away from the stick, well, that ancestor is also going to survive because there was never any danger in the first place. It was just a stick. However, based on the odds of survival, ancestors that are more hypervigilant, so ancestors that jump back and are afraid of everything, are more likely to protect themselves from sticks and snakes alike than an ancestor who just jumped back from a snake and definitely from an ancestor that missed the entire danger. So it behooves us as a species to be hypervigilant. It's more likely to ensure our survival. And in 2023, it's no longer useful for us to be in that state of hypervigilance because we're not encountering the dangers that our ancestors would. Additionally, when we do encounter what our nervous systems perceive as dangerous, whether it's going on a first date and facing the potential for rejection or giving a presentation at work, we oftentimes aren't actually moving through the physical reaction of fighting or running away that is necessary to cue our nervous systems into the fact that they've survived. If you were face-to-face -face with a tiger, you would have to fight or run. Both of those things require a tremendous amount of physical energy to be exerted. Most of the time, when we're incapable of fighting or running, we'll move into what is known as a freeze state, that kind of deer-in-the-headlights moment. When we're in a freeze state, we're incapable of dispelling all of the energy that's required in order to fight or run, and subsequently we get stuck in it. 
this is where a lot of trauma occurs and takes place when we're incapable of fighting or running, which is one of the reasons why intentionally getting your heart rate up, getting your breathing rate up, and breaking a little bit of a sweat is a really important part of taking care of your nervous system and your body's fear and stress response. And that might look like exercising. That might look like literally going for a run or taking a boxing class, actually fighting or running away. But if you think about it, thousands of years ago, we usually wouldn't be fighting or running for more than an hour at a time. Usually we would just need to be doing those things for a few minutes. So if putting a song on and dancing around your living room for three as wildly and vigorously as you can is enough to break a little bit of a sweat for you and get your heart rate up, then that can be one of the ways that you physically begin to shift yourself out of a fight or flight stress response and into more of a parasympathetic state, into a rest and digest relaxation response. And again, I encourage you to keep in mind that Whatever is going on in your mind is going to be way more important than what you're doing with your body. So it doesn't matter how many times you dance around your living room to girls just want to have fun. If your mind is still thinking about imaginary tigers, it's not going to make a difference. This is also one of the reasons why I love breath work so much, because a lot of the more rigorous forms of breath work will elicit essentially the same thing. They'll get us worked up into such a heightened state of sympathetic activation that we can ultimately complete our cycle of stress and begin to actually transition into more of a parasympathetic, relaxed nervous system state. Once you've gotten to a point where your nervous system can identify that you're no longer in danger, that you've completed your cycle of stress, your pituitary gland will start to release this drip of a neurohormone called oxytocin into your bloodstream. Some of you might be really familiar with oxytocin as the bonding hormone or the love hormone because it's released in large amounts when we cuddle, when we physically connect with other people, when there's safe, loving touch present. It's also released through orgasm and through uterine contractions. So this is one of the reasons why mothers feel so bonded to their babies is because the process of going through labor elicits such strong uterine contractions that there's a huge flood of oxytocin that's being released. But when we transition from danger into a perception of safety, oxytocin is released from the pituitary gland and it compels us to seek out support and connect with others. Once we begin that process of connecting with others, we begin to shift even more deeply into a parasympathetic state or a relaxed nervous system state. So after danger has passed, you will naturally feel this compulsion to reach out to people and seek support. And You don't have to wait until the danger has passed in order to start doing that now and start getting support in an effort to ease that transition into a more relaxed nervous system state. 
if you are going through a really anxious and stressful time, or if you know that fear is getting in your way of making some big decisions, it's a really good idea that you connect with another person or with your community as a way of slowing down and getting into a more relaxed state so that you can really deeply take care of yourself or make a decision. That could look like getting a therapist. That might look like getting a coach. That also might look like reaching out to family and friends that you know can foster a safe space for you, a safe, I should say, non-judgmental space for you to share what you're feeling and start to unwind and come down from the stress of whatever it is that you've just been through. Once you do reach more of a parasympathetic state, that's when your body gets to move through the process of restoring itself and taking care of anything that got damaged from being in such a high state of stress. So if, for example, you are fighting a tiger and that tiger swiped at you, this is the time when your body would be able to really put its energy and resources into healing that wound or into digesting any undigested food in your nervous system, into replenishing your adrenal glands and your kidneys and your liver and everything that got neglected when you were in more of that sympathetic nervous system state. This is also where you yield the opportunity to let your mind deeply rest and relax in an effort to take a little bit more of a cognitive break. So we can't have an episode about fear and anxiety without talking about this very specific part of your brain where fear, learning, and unlearning actually takes place. And that is this tiny little almond-shaped part of your limbic system called your amygdala. There are a lot of neurons or nerve cells that flow into your amygdala from another region of your brain called your thalamus. Your thalamus is responsible for kind of stringing together and pulling together sensory information. So the things that you're seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, all of that information comes in through the thalamus and then connects with neurons in the amygdala. So the input is sensory information. The output, the neurons that are within the amygdala, project outwards and connect with your motor cortex and other regions of your brain that are responsible for evoking behaviors. So in the example that I gave earlier about walking through the woods, your ancestors walking through the woods when we were talking about signal detection theory, the sensory information that would be coming into the amygdala is the stick or the snake that's in the middle of the path. The information that would be going out of the amygdala is jumping back. Or in psychological experiences of fear, for example, if you're someone with an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style in romantic relationships, the fear-related behavior that the amygdala would output would be perhaps to avoid the person that you're starting to feel closeness and intimacy with 
or text bomb them a million times because you're feeling really worried that you haven't heard from them in 24 hours. So this is where the neuroplasticity, the learning takes place between fearful or fear-inducing stimulation and subsequent behaviors. It's also worth noting here that this is where the learning takes place for things that are not actually scary or fear-inducing in and of themselves. So if, again, for example, you're someone with an anxious attachment style, there isn't actually anything dangerous about your partner not texting you for 24 hours. But your interpretation of that as dangerous and stress-inducing is something that takes place between the neurons within the amygdala that are receiving information of, I have not yet heard from this person in the last 24 hours, and the response of, I need to text them 20 times in a row. Or for individuals who have phobias, a really common one after the pandemic is agoraphobia or fear of leaving home. There isn't actually anything dangerous about leaving our homes these days. And yet many people have learned to make the association between leaving home and life-threatening danger. That learning, that connection of neurons, that neural pathway that connects the mere idea of leaving the house with danger and the subsequent behaviors to stay at home and never leave ever again, that learning, that conditioning takes place within the amygdala. Now, where this gets a little tricky is that our amygdala is a part of our limbic system. So our brain's emotional circuitry. One of the other parts of the limbic system is this part of the brain called the hippocampus. Your hippocampus is responsible for learning and memory. It's also responsible for mapping and orienting where you are in space and time and physical location. There are a lot of neural connections between your hippocampus and your amygdala, specifically around the area where sensory information is coming into the amygdala. So when we learn to be afraid of something, we learn to be afraid of it in a way that's context general. So say, for example, you had a really bad experience with a dog when you were a child. Say you got attacked or bit by a dog when you were five years old. That learning of being afraid of that dog was context general. So you'll learn to become afraid of not just that dog, but any dog anywhere. This gets really tricky when we look at the way that fear is unlearned. And I'm reluctant to use that word unlearned because it's not actually accurate. When it comes to unlearning fear, there is an entirely different region of your brain involved than your limbic system, your amygdala, your hippocampus that we talked about just a moment ago. The part of your brain that's responsible for unlearning fear is your prefrontal cortex. And the way that it inhibits fear, the way that it unlearns fear, and I'm reluctant to use that word unlearn because it's not actually accurate. The word that we use within the scientific community to talk about 
unlearning fear or deconditioning fear, it's actually called extinction. We don't unlearn fear. We extinguish fear like a fire that we put out. And the part of our brain that's responsible for that extinction of fear is the prefrontal cortex. So it's the part of your brain that's responsible for higher level thinking and cognition and executive function. The neurons of your prefrontal cortex are capable of connecting with the neurons of your amygdala and stopping your amygdala from participating in those fear-related external behaviors. So just to reiterate this entire trajectory of what's happening in your brain, your body takes in sensory information. That sensory information moves through your thalamus. From your thalamus, neurons are projected into your amygdala. Your amygdala will subsequently connect with other neurons that are responsible for fear-related mental, emotional, and physical behaviors. The part of your brain that extinguishes fear, connects with the neurons of your amygdala, and stops them from sending the signal out to other regions of your brain that produce fear-related behavior. So the reason why this is so tricky, the reason why this is so specific and why I'm going through so much detail to explain all of it to you is because your prefrontal cortex doesn't connect with your hippocampus within this specific region of your brain. Because of that, the extinction of fear is context specific. Just to reiterate from a few moments ago, the learning of fear in the first place is context general. So you can think about that dog attack example. If you get attacked by a dog, you learn to be afraid of that dog anywhere and everywhere. If you learn to stop being afraid of a dog, that's context specific. Meeting just one dog and learning to not be afraid of just one dog isn't enough. You have to meet as many as you possibly can because the fear reaction is still going to occur in a context general way. You'll still be afraid of all of the other dogs in the world, even if you've learned to not be afraid of one. So your fourth little homework assignment from today's episode is to make a list of the things that you're afraid of and systematically confront each one and to confront each one in as many different situations and circumstances as you possibly can. And in addition to facing your fears, you'll also start to create a script for your anxiety every single time it pops up, pull yourself out of participating in your thoughts and into the space of observing them through writing them down or typing them out in a notes app on your phone, Start to break a sweat, bring your cycle of stress into a state of completion, and reach out to community for support and connection. If you have any specific questions about how to start working through your fear or anxiety more deeply and intentionally, I freaking love questions. 
head over to my Instagram account at Alex underscore Nashton. Again, that's Alex underscore Nashton. Send me a DM and let me know where you're getting stuck in your fear and anxiety and how you want to move forward. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashton for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. Each episode that you share and tag me in will lead to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast baby is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just want to help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I want to thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality, and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night, I can't even tell you how many times, when I've been freaking out about this podcast. Adam, you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius. I am so, so grateful to have you in my life, and I love you tremendously.